What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Oh, Glenn, I'm so sorry I'm late. I was just out there training. Where have you been? I was out there training my dog. What took you so long? Well, we were doing this particular scenario Mm -hmm. where we were using a hard dog chomp. Yep. I got that from Canon Dynamics, by the way. From old mate Mark LaPointe? Mark LaPointe, yep. yeah. I got uh, I get a lot of my working dog equipment from him. He really flogs some good stuff, doesn't he? Yeah, mm. absolutely. Canon Dynamics. Yeah. And then my dog was attached to a leash and collar. Where did it, you get that from? I got that from Mindswick Dog Whip. Not the old buff head. I got it from Jason. Oh. <laughs> okay. Mindswick Dog Whip. Mindswickdogwhip.com. And, and it all went perfectly. Yep. So- I had to reward the dog. I'm I, very interested. Well, aside from the bites on the chomp, mm-hmm. but, you know, for other things, yep. I gave the dog some Bright's Bites. Oh, good call. Yeah, Bright's Bites. You really are a name dropper, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> you've got the best of the three. You've got the golden triad right there. Absolutely. Mm. If you want, you know, if you're in North America and you want working dog equipment, yep. Canon Dynamics. Yep. If you're in Australia and you want any kind of dog equipment, Einswick Dog Quip. And if you're going to use dog treats... You're crazy if you're feeding your dog anything other than bright spots. Absolutely. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And today we've got kind of a, a, a new and exciting episode. We have two gentlemen joining us on the line. Before they say who they are, I just want to sort of front load. We've never done two people dialing in before. So no. this could be a little bit of talking over yeah, each other. We're first. going to do the best to avoid that. And we're in an interesting time in the world at the moment, and there's a lot going on. And I think sometimes a lot of that can be distilled down to a failure to appreciate nuance. And so I had the idea of having a conversation with some guys who are both exceptionally talented dog trainers and maybe do things a little bit differently in some ways. And we're going to discuss that today. So let's work West Coast to East Coast, closest to us to furthest away from us. Yep. From Las Vegas. You're still in Las Vegas. Yeah, you are. We spoke about that. Mr. Cameron yep. Ford, thanks again for coming on the show. No, thank you guys for having me on here and this opportunity to basically just have fun, talk dog training with both you guys and Jerry. You're welcome. Oh, you've given it away. <laughs> <laughs> so, so working further away from us. Again, coming back on the show from North Carolina and Tahil Canine there, Jerry Bradshaw. Jerry, thanks again for coming on. Always a pleasure to uh, hang out with my Australian buddies. Thanks, mate. Good. Really appreciate having you on. So yeah. we've got this triad of power going on right now, man. It's mm. uh, a <laughs> 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 uh, both. You guys have been on our show before. I've been on both of your shows uh, and had a really great experience at both of them. I'm big fans of both of you. I think that you're both exceptionally talented dog trainers that mm. I've learned a lot from, and I really enjoy listening to your content and you know digesting as much as it is possible. 
And on both your shows, I spoke and I actually had one person call me a shill. Hey, you just agree with everyone you speak to. And I was like, well, I understand that there's some nuance in things. And I agree with most things, especially when successful people are talking. And so we figured, why not? Let's all get together and we can discuss some methods in detection and and training. And I think me and Glenn, our plan is to kind of, Glenn's got a lot more experience in detection than me, but my plan is to kind of act as a moderator in that and steer the conversation and have you experts really weigh in on you know, detailed information and go through some of the nuance on that. So we spoke, Cam, about how we were using a lot of markers in training and you've been well known in the detection phase of of dog training to be uh, outspoken in that and really trying to implement it. We spoke about that. And then I was on Jerry's show and we spoke about how, you know, sometimes markers are good and sometimes they're not, right? So let's get into it in regards to, Cam, when did you start implementing markers in training and what was in detection training and what was the catalyst for that? So I probably did 13 years of doing the, I would call it more traditional. It started off in a lot of times, I'll start off with this. When I refer to old training, I refer to the, where someone takes a dog directly up to one box, presents a hold, and then immediately tells a dog to sit and then pops a toy out of that hole. I started off learning that many years ago, that grew to giving the dog choices and still, of course, rewarding directly from the source to what was funny was I was dating this girl from SeaWorld and she's watching what we're doing. And I even had the remote boxes. I had a lot of different stuff. And she looked at me after watching and just kind of goes, why, why do you do it that way? And I explained to her, this is what I was, how I was trained. This is what I know. This is how I've, you know, kind of made little tweaks to it and things I've learned from it. And she goes, why don't you just make odor a target and then create a condition reinforcer and marker? That's the signal that means reward. And once I kind of saw what she was talking about and saw her using it, obviously with a lot of other animals in her world that she worked with, it opened my eyes to, okay, there's some efficiency here. Because one of the biggest things that we all see as trainers and and handlers is when the dog obviously knows we have their reward item, whatever it is, they, depending on how the handler operates, that dog may tend to focus as much on the handler as much as it does the search environment because they want to read that handler when that handler may give a tell as to when reward is imminent versus being efficient and really being good at searching. That comes from, at the end of the day, a lot of just bad training or bad technique and things like that. What it showed me by her showing me that process was I could be more efficient by using a audible signal. Now that audible signal can be you know, there's different choices, you know, clicker, whistle, verbal, so on. And by having that audible signal prior to the delivery of reward, the dog wasn't able to use me body language wise for information as easily as me in our innate nature is to be ready to reward a dog. And my personal experiment was when I started working with the SEAL teams, these were guys that came to me as handlers who have never touched dogs before. So in my first thinking, I was like, oh, thank God, these guys are going to be great because they'll, they won't reach for a toy because they've never even worked a dog. They're, they won't have that habit built into them mm-hmm. to do that. As soon as I put them on a dog, the first thing they do is want to reach for their toy. Mm-hmm. What I learned was it was human nature to want to be ready, 
till you have your reward. And of course, when a handler is new, they really telegraph. So the what I got to learn from that or how I got to apply these things was, hey, handler, all you have to do is give this audible signal before you do anything else. You don't have to reach for anything. You don't have to touch anything. You don't have to do anything besides let the dog do its job. When the dog does you know, this behavior, then you're going to give that signal and then you reward. And where the reward comes from after the signal is given can be all kinds of different things. I can have it eight feet off to the side. And when the dog indicates the dog, here's a signal, the dog can go run over eight feet to my left or can be rewarded over their head or it can be off to the other side or back at me. Now, most common is back at the handler, especially when I was in the special operations environment. I needed the dog to come back to the direction of where the handler was generally being. That would be the safest direction. That molded into, of course, doing, didn't matter what detection work we were involved in. It was whether it be from things from like, you know, mass media storage dogs to bomb dogs to drug dogs and so forth. The principle of that having the, that tool, that signal that I could do gave me a lot more leeway and transferability to the handlers because the handlers weren't worried about not moving, standing still, don't stand here, make sure you get behind them, don't get caught reaching for your, you know, all of these things started to, I didn't have to deal with them as much as a trainer. So the efficiency process was a lot better for me and for taking guys who we had to train. And the fact that I need a dog, especially a SF dog. And as you know, Pat, I need that dog to range. Mm -hmm. And one of the downsides in the beginning, when I first got out there was Dogs were so keyed in on handlers when they where their pouch was and their dump bag where the toy was at, and dogs would range. But then you know, and again, this isn't the method that was the problem. It was the application and some of the errors that were there. So the dogs would range and go so far out, and then kind of look back and okay, where's the handler at? And they'll look on. When we started implementing a more clear, and for this case, when it was a distance thing, we had our silent whistles. Mm-hmm. So the dog could range significantly out in front, search, if it made an indication, make its indication and hold that position because it needed to hold that position for a significant period of time to allow decisions to be made on how to handle what was going on. In some cases, EOD would have to move up all the way to the dog before the dog would be released. Other cases, the dog's holding position, they make adjustments, whatever they're going to do based on that situation. And the use of the whistle allow the dog to know it's released, but then to follow that sound to its handler. Mm-hmm. Because in many cases, they may have had to move from where the dog was initially deployed from. Yeah, makes so sense. There, there so there was a work, of, there was a operational aspect <sighs> that was implemented and gave that tool its use. But the foundation of the signal aspect to reward was the same. So we started off with a verbal you know, we also had that tool of a silent whistle to be brought in as a tool to uh, to do distance work. But the because of that method to it, the dogs were willing to rain because they weren't the information. There wasn't really a ton of information coming from the handler that helped them solve the detection problem. Sure. So at the end of the day, as I evolved for me as a trainer was this was a more efficient process because of I didn't have to deal with as many handler innate cues, especially new handlers and what they would do. Once I pretty much said, hey, 
all you need to do is do this, this signal, and then you can do the reward or do the signal and we move on and continue searching. We introduced a variable reward at that point, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it allowed us an efficiency process and the efficiency in the search process because now I don't have the dog paying attention to the handler looking for cues. My joke is don't play poker with your cards facing your opponent. And when a handler who does reaches or sees a dog sniffing longer, starts reacting or walking behind the dog, dogs are like, oh, well, maybe this is going to happen. And, you know, these are, these are, these are typical issues we see uh, with, I would say, more often newer teams than season teams. But even still, I mean, I, I get to go around and certify for these different agencies that I, or different uh, organizations, and it runs the gamut. You know, you even have experienced guys making, you know, mistakes that you're kind of surprised at. But at the end of the day, what I looked for was an efficient process. And I think what people get focused on because I bring in science a lot. I'm like, oh, there's science to direct reward. There's science to classical and operant conditioning are psychological slash scientific principles. It's all science in its, in its form of that, that definition. Um, what I try to push hard and I get passionate about, you know, and I have to also sometimes get better at communicating that message. It's an efficient process. You know, I don't use my typewriter anymore to send friends messages. I use a computer. Both work. One has more efficiency to it than another. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the motivation or the reason why for me or how I ended up into that more marker-based system. But even to this day, I will still direct reward the dog. My whole first steps is mark and reward at source. Mark and reward at source. And I'm using typically food in those first few steps just for the repetition's sake. And then I mark and then I have jackpot, which would be toy or what have you for that dog. So it, it's people may confuse. And that's why I made a post recently on social media. People may confuse because I'll focus on points within a podcast or a post on social media, a certain aspect. And I'm focused in on whatever that aspect is. And I'm going from there on it. And I don't get to, unless you go through a class with me, you get to see Oh, oh, he like Pat. You got to see some of the stuff. Mm -hmm. This is what he does here. This is how that's done there, and so on and so forth. So it's 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 unique in that sense that you know, as I navigate the social media world and podcasts and webinars and things like that, you don't always know the message you put out is uh, what's taken from that message too, and that's a responsibility I have to have as a uh, podcast host or, or a social media person that you know offers training suggestions. Interesting listening to you talking about that, Cameron, because there's a term that I use with students when I'm training them called gunslingers. And a lot of the times, as you said, you know, students get so enthusiastic about the whole reward system that they start fiddling around with their treat pouch like an old gunslinger going yeah. for their gun. And it, <laughs> yeah. it's, it is an observation that I've changed and manipulated throughout my own training career and, and especially since I've been working on scent detection to try not to give too many cues to the dog that I'm there that I'm going to walk up that I'm that I've slowed down or I'm doing anything different or I've changed the aspect ratio of what I'm doing what I'm trying to do 
you know, pretty much as you pointed out in your picture, is let the dog do its work. I mean, it, it's insane yeah. and it's offensive to the olfaction system of a dog to assume that we know so much better than, than how a dog can detect. What we do know is what we're trying to get the dog to look for, but the problem is is all these extra enhancements that we try and do, like, you know, bouncing balls off things and so forth, and you can see the whole change in the dog, and it's something that I've tried to step away with. It's not to say that these systems don't work. You and I were talking about this prior to coming on, on air. There's a lot of things that I, I see people doing in training and I think, oh, that shouldn't work, but it does. And at the end of the day, sure. the, the dog is a, a, an absolute bastion of, of good training. It, it detects well, it finds the odor, it's it's doing the job really well. But there's other times where I watch it and I think, well, now I know why the dog is struggling so much. Now I know why the, the student is having so much difficulty in the work that they're trying to produce is because they're overcompensating and they're stepping in and the dog is losing its ability to focus. And at the end of the day, when we're talking detection work, this is something that we really need to make bridges into into preventing is to stop the dog from multi-focusing, like looking at you and hunting for odour at the same time because it's really taking its mind away from the work that it's trying to produce. Something um, just oh, to yeah. tie what both you guys are saying there together, it's funny you use the term gunslinger because – as you were saying there, Ken, when you're talking to these guys, uh, you know, not getting them to predict the marker by moving their body or whatever, for actual gunslingers, the way that I've said that is I say the marker is the pack timer. You're not allowed to move until yeah. the pack timer goes off. And mm. real gunslingers, that makes – like actual guys who train on a gun every day, they know exactly what you mean. Like, hey, you have to stand still. That pack timer mm-hmm. is the marker for you to begin work. Yep. So, hey, I want to – now move over to Jerry. So Jerry, I spent a day with Ben one day out at, at Tar Hill uh, and they were loading scent on dogs. And the, at that time, the scent was coming out of the box. And I know you guys do use markers and, and ma- maybe in different ways. It's Do you use markers in detection at Tar Hill or is it it's still like in the learning phase? I know it's an at source reward, but what's the progression from there? Well, yeah, I do. I think some of my beef is not really with markers at all. It's uh it's more with the starting the whole process with indirect reward, which, you know, obviously is, is based off of a marker system. Mm-hmm. We start everything with direct reward, trying to create a reward history in the environment of the dog wanting to search at a, at a high level of, you know, of drive and, and, and intensity and so forth. And one of the things I find when people start to train obedience early in the process is you oftentimes in the hurry to, you know, to, to teach the, odor recognition and final response together at the very beginning, a lot of people will say, well, we want to teach it in a low drive state. So we'll maybe use food so we can get a lot of repetitions in. And, you know, I, I just find for, you know, when you have dogs that need to come out and search with like blazing intensity, you know, after maybe being off for a little while, you know, riding around in the car and then you have a traffic stop and you want to get that dog out and you, and you want him in, in his highest state of performance drive uh, as possible. Uh, or it's really hot out or whatever the environmental conditions are. I want that dog to associate, you know, searching for drugs uh, in, in my case, because we train most of the drug dogs here. I wanted to associate, you know, coming out and, and doing that drug search with, with that being a, a, like a high drive activity. And, you know, so, you know, we kind of, you know, we kind of start everything with, with a direct reward system where the dog is just going out into the environment and he's hunting and, you know, the idea is, you know, we want that dog to create a fixed action pattern that when you, you know, sort of initiate the idea in that dog's head that you're about to go search for drugs, that he's going to be in a high state of drive and he's going to be ready to negotiate whatever environmental obstacles there are. He's going to be able to, you know, search uh, with duration and intensity during that duration and so forth. And so I find it problematic with dogs that are 
are trained with uh, odor recognition and a final response at the very beginning. And I kind of lump most indirect reward systems that way because I think a lot of people that train indirect reward from the from the get-go, you know, the the final response somehow in the last, I mean, five years of detection training has, you know, like become the end-all be-all of, uh, of detection training. It's like so important to get that started and get that under the dog's belt. And if you don't like train odor recognition at the very beginning with, let's say, hunting, then, uh, you know, you have to train it with something, right? There has to be, there has to be some delivery mechanism of the, of the odor to come to the dog. And so, so I've, you know, I've always been skeptical and I've, I've seen a lot of dogs trained with, uh, you know, what I kind of term obedience training. Basically, it's like you're training an, you're training an olfactory cue to sit, right? So mm-hmm. here we are, a bunch of high-level dog trainers, right? And uh, man, if you can't teach a dog to sit on like seven different types of, uh, of cues, and you're not really a good professional dog trainer. So mm-hmm. I, I really think like, I, what do I want most of all? I want a fixed action pattern. I want a dog like really getting in there with tons of intensity. And, I, and here's the other thing too, is I think if you train a few dogs, you know what I mean? A couple here, a couple there. And, you know, you have, let's say, yeah, let's say you're training a special forces programs, dogs like Cameron, you know, did um, back in the day like you're training with the, the 1% of 1% of, of animals, right? Like you could probably train that dog's final response, you know, with a sledgehammer and that dog. Would work <laughs> yeah. you know I mean? Like some people don't realize that, you know, that, you know, like every, you talk to every vendor in the United States and they're going to tell you they train the top 1% of dogs. Mm. You know, like I, I think when you're training dogs, you're going to be training a variety of dogs with different, you know, different drive levels and intensity levels of those drives and so forth. So I look at a cross section of, you know, dogs that we're training, some single purpose dogs, some, you know, dual purpose dogs. And I look for, for me, I look for a method that is going to number one, early in the process, sort out dogs that have environmental issues or are not going to be able to negotiate their operational environments. So I'd rather see them hunting in different operational environments. And while they're doing that business, also learning their odors Mm. and then for the final response to training a little bit later. Now, when we get to, you know, like if you can't, you know, like you came to Tar Heel, you saw what dogs we trained, like Ben trains dogs on indirect reward for their final indication because we train SSD dogs for the military and, and sell them those dogs. And obviously for operational reasons, there, you know, a lot of, a lot of dogs where you want them to hold an indication, like Cameron was saying, and bring them back to your position, uh, bring back to your cover position or so forth. And that, you know, it certainly makes sense to train the indication with an indirect reward system there. And I don't really have a beef with how anybody, you know, wants to train their final response. My big concern is all of a sudden the whole industry now is being swept by this idea that indirect reward at the very beginning of the training is, is like a great idea. And I've, as a vendor in the past 15 years, I've seen tons of, of agencies come down, buy a dog, take it back and train it like old style on the boxes. Like Cameron was talking about, you know, just bring the dog to the box and sit the dog, you know, like 1965 sometimes calls and wants their training back from a lot of my, <laughs> you know, they'll take a dog that's like fresh off the plane, 11 months old, take them back home in two weeks, they call me up and they say, Hey, the dog won't hunt anymore. And I say, okay, well like, you know, what did you do as soon as you got home? Tell me exactly what you did. Well, yeah, we put them on the boxes and I'm like, okay. So you, you took a search problem that is here, search this infinite number of possible hiding places in a big room 
let's say, or on you know a set of 15 cars, and you've boiled it down to four. Mm. And you wonder why the dog is not so motivated to go out and like explore every crack and crevice, you know what I mean, after, after you did that. And he starts to lose interest and it's not quite all that interesting anymore mm. because you boil it down to an obedience problem. Can and, I ask you something uh, on that, Jerry? So that's what you mean when you say a fixed action pattern in like a hunt could be anywhere rather than within a, a set of parameters. Is that what you mean by that? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's called the foraging model of, you know, dog behavior basically, which is to, you know, hunt, stalk, you know, I forget what the exact, you know, the exact way it's uh, described, you know, chase, catch, kill, eat. Mm-hmm. And we just, you know, and, and, and basically what we do is we take that and we, you know, prolong the salient points of it to, you know, for what we need as, you know, as a, um, as a detection trainer where I need this dog to, you know, go in on his, you know, on, on the hottest, most miserable day into this warehouse where there's one fan barely cranking and we have to sweep it efficiently. And so I need that dog at his, at his utmost best. I need him to be thinking in terms of, man, you know, like I want to be, I want to be up and drive. And so I feel like you need to condition that. Mm -hmm. I I think the drive state in which a dog works at the beginning of a task, you know, some people call that like primacy of learning, how they learn to function in the beginning of how they behave carries over into how they execute that. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important for the dogs to, you know, if if they're going to come out and be in that high drive state when you have to bring them out to perform that you have to condition that behavior. And so when, you know, when the dog comes out and you can cue him a little bit, you know, like maybe make him miss his ball twice and then sit him and, you know, and then boom, you give him his, uh, you give him his command to, to start the search that in the process of beginning the, you know, the, the cue for that, the dog starts to self load and, you know, because he knows what's next. It's a, it's a predictable pattern of what he's done over and over and over and over again. You know, it's kind of like, you know, kind of like when, when people say a wolf cub learns how to hunt, he doesn't learn how to hunt per se. Like they're not, they don't have to teach him how it is. Uh, He's got, you know, he's got genes that are going to switch on when you start, you know, sort of leading him down that, you know, that, that path. And, uh, you know, when the, the, you know, he starts following the parents out and he looks clunky and he can't keep up and, you know, but at the end of the day, he gets to eat what the, what they've killed. And then he starts getting bigger and stronger and faster. And he's, he's modeling that behavior our job is basically doing the same. We're trying to model that high drive behavior. And I think when people start in, in these low drive states because they're like they're so worried about how they're going to teach this final response, it becomes becomes, you know, a little bit to me crazy that we're so worried about that. It's a sick command. Mm-hmm. I fully agree because mm. I'm laughing because I just did a class today for new trainers and I have a graph on the in one of the PowerPoint screens. And it says when, and one of the things that of course, like Jerry brings up that I learned myself was every dog I start, I spend basically probably, let's just say two weeks of hunting games, hunting games with self-retrieve. So it's all about the hunt because in a search, because as I, as I do my slide, I'm like, what's the most important thing that we want? You know, there's basically, let's say three prongs. We need search, odor recognition, and then whatever the indication is. But the, that older system that Jerry and I were both talking about had so much emphasis on that final response. And to Jerry's point, when people got really into the indirect reward, especially pulling it from, let's say, the pet side of things, there was so much focus on that indication or sit that in my little graph here, it shows 85% about the sit, 5% about the search, and only 10% about the odor. And what we know we really want is 
a lot about the search, a lot about the odor. And as mm. far as a specific, let's say, sit position, that's minor because many handlers can read their dogs on an indication, let's say, locking up, freezing. So like, you know, Jerry and I think both do. I go from, you know, all about the hunting and then they freeze up. You know, I don't ask for anything when they kind of, whatever that natural response is when they hit the stimulus is usually most dogs will kind of just kind of lock up like, Ooh, I found it. What do I do now? Mm-hmm. And, or I can't get to it. What do I do now? And then that's for me where I start bringing in that signal. This is where that starts, start, that part starts happening to me. And then I go into refining it and offering the typical, okay, here's, here's various odors presented to you in a line. There's one of these is the one, you know, and when they go down to it and, and give that whatever, for me, I don't necessarily care about the sit position like Jerry brings up too is, a lot of times people get so focused on the cosmetics of the indication that it takes away from the actual task. And they get so wrapped around the axle about how the pretty the indication is. Again, it deters or takes away from search or odor recognition. Your two most important things you need before the indication. There's another after- issue in there too, Cameron, which I see a lot of times when people are doing it or when they're focused on the sit is that they start creating an aversion around the actual behavior. Yeah. So they're so focused on making the sit happen that they start to teach the sit while the dog is really supposed to be in a, a learning environment of working on odor recognition. And then they start ground and pounding the dog into the sit position, which again is a, an association, which is a negative association. And if you've got a yep. dog that is concerned about that, then it's going to be concerned about you walking up to it grabbing the dog and, and using some sort of negative reinforcement, which you think it is, but to the dog, it's usually positive punishment because you're grabbing the dog by the collar and slamming its ass into the ground, which should have been worked independently to the odor anyway, because things mm-hmm. like these sort of behaviors can be worked. They can be laid in at any time and it should be worked independently. I mean, you should be teaching the dog to sit away from the environment. So when the command is given, the dog has a reflex behavior. It sits straight away. The problem is solved. Mm-hmm. Jerry, were you, think, you're about to say something then? Yeah, I, th- I think um, like for me, once we, you know, like once we uh, actually put the dogs on the boxes to teach the final response, like we're on boxes for that for like seven sessions, usually on average, mm-hmm. before we're fading the boxes and going back to operational hunting behavior. And you know, it's a, it's a brief turn from what they've been doing. We put them on the boxes, we get them off the boxes and then, you know, we're kind of back to doing our thing. And now we have, you know, now we have a, a set behavior. And I think like for me, the way I, the way we use markers, I use a more of a tactile marker than a, than a, uh, an auditory marker when the dog, you know, um, gets the source and, and he gives the trained final response. And, and that is, I, you know, we'll start petting the dog when he's in the stare position at the odor. And, you know, that's where also, you know, both on the boxes and then shortly thereafter, we're, you know, working in neutrality into the training where we have, you know, people moving around the dog while he's holding that indication. We have noise being made in and around the dog. You know, you can be, you know, pulling on your Velcro and, and, and dropping things, yep. making sharp noises and things like that. So the dog, like, like a dog has to learn neutrality to a lot of that stuff. Mm. You know, so that when we hand him off to Sean in the handler course and he has clunky ass handlers that are, you know, uh, going to do those things anyway, that they're already built in neutrality to it. So he doesn't have to really worry about it. And then you're, you're basically just teaching the dog when he gets in that final response. Like if anybody thinks the dog is staring where the drugs are, you know what I mean? Like we're fooling him into looking where the drugs are. Like to me, that's an idiotic thing to say. Like the dog has learned 
to stare. And yeah, at first he's like stares into the obvious fucking hole that's in the box, right? Because that's, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's where the Kong pops out of, right? Okay, I'll give you that. But then after a while, you like you fade that picture to the dog and he gets into source and he's just going to like he's going to stare. He's going to stare at what's in front of him because he learns if he holds that position, a reward is imminent. Mm-hmm. And then yep. we'll start petting the dog and pushing duration on that behavior and things like that. And that that teaches the dog by using use of a marker. Hold that. Hold that. Hold that. And then you're going to your ball is just going to you know come over the top of your head now. Ben's dogs, as you mentioned, like he's when he's training dogs that that need to come back on an indirect reward system is required in the statement of work. And so, you know, that's how they have to be they have to be trained that way. Right. So I don't have a problem with that. It's I think for me, the simplest, easiest way, you know, to uh, to do the training that we do is to actually not count on the handler at all to worry too much about markers other than, you know, maybe like positioning himself to where he can pet the dog, keep the dog in behavior, learn how to do that kind of stuff. And then, you know, just the reward just jumps in front of the dog's face at some point in in the process. And you can even, as you get, as you get further into, into it with the dogs that we train, you can get even a little sloppy with it. And the dog just has now the habit of holding that indication until the ball comes out. And so I don't really, I don't really have a problem with the dog doing a lot of drifting off of the, off of the behavior because we did a, a fair bit to stabilize that behavior in the beginning. You get some dogs, you know, some dogs that will, but there, there are other techniques to, to get the dog to, you know, sort of push him back to that, that particular position. Mm. But I, I think, I think Mark, you know, like, Hey, I think markers are super important. I, you know, I have a dog that won PSA three nationals last year. And here's one thing I know about my dog. I can point my hand signal at a decoy when there's four decoys on the field. When he looks at that decoy I'm pointing on, I can say yes. And that son of a bitch, even after nine years of fucking training, will still jump that marker and want to go bite him before I say pocket. Like, that's the fact. Like, you have an impulsive dog, you're going to get dogs that are going to jump off markers. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, people think that because you have put a behavior on a marker, that's the only way the behavior will manifest. Like, once I say yes, he's going to run back to me. Like, a dog can't think to run back to you before you say yes because he feels like you recalled him or he heard the ball or, you know, whatever the case may be. Like, somehow that just solidifies that behavior. Like, dogs can do the same behavior for 10 different reasons. Right. So just because you put a, a behavior on a marker as like a release marker mm. doesn't mean that's the only reason the dog thinks he might be able to be released. Right. So I think I think sometimes we what gets preached to people who maybe don't know any better is that just because you put it on like I would love to be able to tell hey Raptor, I put that I put that, you know, bite command on a marker. So like, why are you running at him? You know, when I just point at him, you know, like, why would you do something like that? Uh, and it's because he's an impulsive little son of a bitch and that's why he does it. Mm -hmm. Right. So hold my beer. I know how to do this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like sometimes when you have impulsive dogs, you're, you're going to get drifting off markers and things like that. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I get it. Like there is a, what Cameron says, there's a lot of efficiency in like clearing things up for the dog. Some of that efficiency actually happens when you have like just generally good communication with the dog, you know, even even independent of the marker system. But having a marker is, is, is can be a very good thing. However, they can it can also it can also create some problems if the markers are not used properly, if they're not maintained properly. And I just have a lot of canine handlers out here on the East Coast where they don't have tons of supervision. So if I can, you know, make a particular behavior 
as, you know, how do you want to say, I'm trying not to curse again. Um, Go ahead. You, know, like, you can say shit, have, fuck, whatever you want. <laughs> have a behavior that's not so, you know, fuck upable. So let's use that one. That Then, uh, you know, we tend to try and stay with the simplest things. As soon as I get, you know, as soon as I get my handlers more involved in terms of like they're going to be in charge of the releasing behavior and things like that, uh, you know, sometimes I worry that some handlers are going to, they're going to mess that up. And then when I go to seminars and I see, you know, dogs that are, that are trained on some of these indirect reward systems and, and the dogs, like sometimes they don't want to range out. Like they, they understand like the reward history is so strong when they started from the beginning that they want to keep coming back to like the handler is the most important thing. He's got the ball all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. And they don't know how to create neutrality to that. They don't know how to balance it with like some direct reward sometimes to teach the dog that ranging away and being away from you is a good thing. And then, you know, you have, you have these handlers that keep having to verbally push their dogs back into the search patterns and things like that. And I've solved a lot of those problems by saying, look, just like go back to a direct reward system, make it simpler for the dog, go into your environment, find shit in your environment. I understand you can't do that with every single dog with every single purpose. Right. But at the same time with a lot of these dogs, like, you, know, you got handlers that are keeping up their bite work, keeping up their tracking, keeping up their detection. You know, some of them are just users of technology and some are, you know, like not the best users of that technology. So the simpler we keep things, sometimes the better for mm-hmm. them. So indulge me both of you for a second while I, I summarize and then ask you both the same question. It sounds to me like both of you start pretty much the same way in that you're developing the hunt for a direct reward of, so you're developing the hunt of the reinforcer, right? You're letting the dog actually find it. And you both end in the position where you have a dog who has a condition final response, who can be reinforced at the source or with a marker can be called back to be reinforced by the handler. And what I think that there might be the only minor point of difference that you guys would have is where that's introduced what point in training is that like marked to be reinforced off the actual source itself where that's introduced? So that's my question to you both is uh, where do you introduce that? And then the second part of the question is, do you load that marker in a, a different context to then be used in the detection training when the dog is ready for it? Cameron, can you answer that one for me? Yeah. So you, you, you basically summarized it pretty good. The, and I think Jerry and I both agree crappy training no matter what system you're doing is going to be, it shows itself mm-hmm. or I would say crappy upkeep of the training because I know Jerry's probably seen it himself. I see it with myself with people I work with too, is we, we put in our time, we, we show them the right ways to do things and then you don't see them for X amount of weeks or what have you. Next thing you know, they're training at, you know, some event or whatever. And it looks like complete hell. And then they're like, where'd you go to school at? Oh, I went there. (laughs) So with that said, and you know, some of the pitfalls that he brings up about the marker system is absolutely right. One of the number one things I commonly see, and and I'll circle this back to you the way your your question is, but one of the number one things, issues I see is people want to mark so fast. Mm -hmm. So you get a dog that just kind of goes like a touch and go. You know, Mm -hmm. so there's like no real good demonstrative change in behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing that's really readable. And they're like, I use marker and I can't get to stay there and all that kind of stuff. Just like I have the handlers with that, you know, want to pay at source who telegraph so damn much that like we talked about, the dog is constantly looking at them. So I I think another thing where we probably differ at is which version we, we, we view as 
what problem he chooses to deal with and what problem I like to deal with. You know, I, I look at handlers are more apt to constantly make these cues. And I see lots of dogs that do lots of handler paying attention to. And that has nothing to do. It's just bad training. Regardless, just like watching bad marker training is bad marker training too. And it's good that this conversation kind of brings this up because just like Jerry said, so I'm sure I'll bring up a study and I think we're all familiar with it. It was one they talked about, oh, the, was there any value in verbal marker, clicker or not, or none? Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day or end of the task was, there was very little difference between the verbal and the clicker. And the and, and even they said there was efficiency to the the one not doing it. But the big part that everybody leaves off in that survey is the like kind of like the cliff note of it was the when they didn't use a marker, the dogs picked up on the bow when the person leaned mm-hmm. in. They yeah. the dogs picked up so it became a body language cue. Which is a maca. So you got it. So and the I, body I, language cue became the marker. Remind me, what, what was the I behavior they were actually teaching? Fun. It was a very simple thing, like a sit right next to them, though, wasn't it? Yeah, it was opening of a box. It was the t- task was like to go to a box or open this box or a mailbox, or whatever it was. And they used the three different ways. Mm-hmm. And and again, I use, and this it hits the point right now, especially people are afraid, society, and we're fighting this right now in the United States, of a law enforcement, societal injustice, and bias towards individuals, individuals of a race. So they're going to want to point a finger, whether they're right, wrong, or indifferent, that let's say the canine handler, and unfortunately, Live PD loved showing this. You would see these handlers go in, and I use one of the videos all the time in my lecture. The dog never really searches the car. He spends half his time looking at the handler. The handler does like a little spin around, searches again by the driver's door, and then rewards his dog. And there was so much because basically the driver pissed off the cop and said, no, you ain't searching my car. Okay, fine. I'll get my dog. Oh, guess what? I'm in your car now. Cause he alerted. Mm-hmm. There was no true indication. There was no, it was, it was just crappy handling in, in a lot of other circumstances. So what I like to do or what I want to see, no matter what it is, is as minimal information or body language cues. Cause again, where I go more in the science on cognition is the dog's ability to make an inference and also memory. And is the dog applying either or to the situation from the handler? So if the handler comes in the situation with its bias, the dog sniffs a spot a little longer than normal. The handler does X, Y, or Z. Good training addresses this. Don't get me wrong. A majority of, of the handlers, like, like uh, Jerry was saying, unfortunately can go unsupervised or they're a three man department or whatever. And when you see these things, this is a problem we have to deal with. So he's right on the West Coast. There has been, you have one of the biggest dog vendors out here in the West Coast. That's uh, the whole training now is a, is a marker-based detection training system. So, so many of these handlers don't know anything else other than using a verbal release. Mm-hmm. It has proven just as successful as any of the other things. Because again, at the end of the day, good training is good training, no matter what you're doing. So to circle back to your point being where I introduce that actual marker. So yes, I load the marker by itself. It has nothing to do with detection. It's just I teach what the signal means. The signal is followed by the reinforcer. The later on when after I've done the searching games and I start, I basically introduce two items. One item has the odor that it knows and one item does not. When it sniffs the one that it does and whatever behavior I want it to do is then given that, that mark. And then 
and this is about the only time I use food for just like Jerry says with boxes. He's on the boxes for a few days. I use this for maybe a day and a half. It's just so there, there's an extra couple of reps. And, and again, my thing that I've learned through the cognition with Brian Hare was sometimes or many times less is more. You know, if I get a couple good reps, I don't need any more. Mm-hmm. So I give a dog, it gets, you know, does what, you know, makes a decision. This is the one that's got the odor in it. I mark reward, bring the dog a piece of food one or two times. The very next one, it's a toy and we're done. That lasts a couple of reps. And then there's various items out. Let's just say I'm using the elbow pipes for this day. I have the elbow pipes out. The dog searches the various elbow pipes. There's also distracting odor there or proofing odor, whatever is out. The dog indicates only to the target odor. It's, re- it's marked and rewarded. Then within a day, I change the context again. Now it's boxes. The, you know, a day or two later, now it's a different container because I want the one thing that's consistent to be the odor, not the context of the item, the box or whatever it is. And like sure. Jerry made a good point. You, you put a port out to a lot of dogs. You put like a pipe or a port or a hole. Man, you'll have some dogs just give you the behavior because it's, a, it's the context of the port mm-hmm. or the hole. So it's the more, you know, we can change the, those things up. And again, this is that evolution in, in dog training like Jerry brings up. I love one of his statements on the last uh, podcast he did was in 10 years from now, it's not going to look like what we look like at or what we're doing at the moment. Just yeah. like we were all kind of laughing and, you know, uh, or, you know, bringing up the old school way of go to the box, sniff the box, sit. you know, you know, the dog's like, Holy shit, what's going on? I just going to a box. And then the dog never learns. They have all this, like you said, aversion because this box could be a bad thing mm. or, okay. The quickest way to get out of pressure is go to a box and just sit. And then all of a sudden when you add another box there, they're like, Oh shit, which one do I pick? Oh damn it. What is it? There's boxes everywhere. Oh God. You know, and then there was, you know, again, there was, there was heavy handed techniques. There's different things. So we want clarity and we want simplicity. And, and for me, I, and I know Jerry too, we want the handler to be there to do their job, present the search area in the sense when I say present, bring the dog to the search area, make sure it's searched efficiently and done so. And the handler can read their dog and tell you know when the dog is, indicating and, and responding to whatever the target odor may be. Mm-hmm. We want that. We want that portability. We want it easy because what we all see, no matter what side it is, the problem so many times is lazy or bad training. The handler knows the answer. Therefore, the handlers are doing these things and it shows itself and it manifests itself quite dramatically. For me, in my opinion is, I see that more often with you know, dogs that are where the handler constantly has the toy and he's trying to hide it. Not the ones that walk around like Jerry's dogs that can have the ball in their hand. The dog couldn't give two shits about the ball. They know the job. He's made it in his training very clear. Hey, the only way you get this is go do your job. But people don't get to go through his training as often that, you know, we both can say, or we all have seen, there's many bastardized versions of this stuff. And there's, I'll give you an example here in Las Vegas at one of the police canine seminars, one of the instructors trained and told people you use canine sleight of hand. I'm like, <laughs> I live here in fucking Las Vegas, magicians everywhere. And I have never seen canine sleight of hand as a magic trick. Yeah. However, this was what was presented to law enforcement handlers as a valid technique. And I was like, you got to be shitting me. You know, and the guy filmed it on his phone just so I could watch it. 
Uh, Hey, Cam, let me just, let me just stop it for one sec. Cause you said something very interesting. I just want to explore that before I then just check whether I understood what you're saying correctly. Am I right in saying that if someone were, you know, in training, the handler knows where the, the odor is, where the source is. And if he's mm-hmm. const- if via his body language, he's kind of inferring that to the dog. Is it possible then that the dog or the handler could by accident on purpose teach his dog to give that condition final response to the area that he's indicating that he should? And then on a live job where there is potentially nothing in the car, the handler could then sort of infer to the dog, you should sit and stare at that door handle for me. And there might be handlers that are doing that by accident and there might be handlers that are doing that on yep. purpose. And then it's interesting to us because the, the law works kind of differently here. Like my understanding with you guys is the indication by the dog gives the police permission to search the car, right? Whereas like in Australia, we don't need that. We would be using the dog to actually try and find the drugs within the car that they already have permission to search. So, so that's we, interesting to me. I've never considered that, that, that by acts, like by poor training, by inferring where it is, when you know it is, if you think it might be somewhere, you would then infer it to the dog. And then there's your, there's your probable cause to search the car. That's interesting to me. Mm. Oh yeah. Jerry and I probably see, I mean, I know he sees it too. You'll see, you know, I'll do experiments. So, so for example, what's, what are common things just when you put out training odor and you're running, let's say three or four dogs in the training session. Besides the training odor, what other salient odors are going to be there, especially after the first dog runs? The, the dog saliva. Dog saliva and human Food odor. residue, so, human odor, or whatever. If it so you got human odor, using. dog saliva, and target odor. Let's, say. let's just pick those three. Yep. Okay. So after, you know, through training, the dog knows these three things exist consistently. You know, so your job as a good trainer should be starting to try to do what you can to eliminate some of the other things, but whatever it is, what it is, you have to get the dog to work through it. So what I'll do sometimes is put out dog saliva and human odor, but no target odor. So when a handler comes in and they're running the problem blind, the dog sniffs that area that has the dog saliva and human odor and moves on. But when that dog does that little bit lingering sniff and the dog goes around and searches the area and doesn't get anything else, what a lot of handlers go right back to that. Well, shit, this is training. I got, there's gotta be odor out. So the only place he cared about was back over there. Let's go back over there again. Mm. So dog goes to handler, handler takes the dog back over there. Now the dog's like, yep, two to three things are here. And then the handler, some dog lingers there a little bit longer, sniffs around, maybe goes down five feet one way or five feet the other way, whatever. And now the handler's like, oh shit. The handler starts doing their, let's do the dance. Okay, I got to get behind you when you start sitting. So they start doing the movements. They start doing these things that the dog knows to be probable. Like Jerry was saying, that reinforcement's going to happen next. So the dog may leave. So now the dog lingered longer, even telegraphed a little bit because what the handler was doing, some handlers now are going to go back. No, no, no. You almost alerted. So my joke constantly with teams is, it's not your fucking job to convince the dog there's odor there. It's the dog's job to convince you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So quit trying because your dog did a little bit of this, trying to convince them there's something there. It told you the first pass by there was nothing there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But again, when there's that pressure or in some cases, the mental bias, the bias can be different, different things, but the mental bias, let's call it training bias today because they know it's training session. So what goes out in training session odor. So they come into it expecting to find something and when there's nothing there or slight changes that mimic or close to what they see when their dog finds odor they they start doing things 
and that manifests itself at that point. Yeah. The other dog saliva is an interesting one. I actually saw a whole training group fail at a NAPWADA certification when a dog got saliva on one of the boxes and every other dog in his training group indicated on his saliva. So to my original question then, am I correct in saying that you implement the marker for the release to reinforcement back to the handler at a stage where you've introduced a, an other odor, a non-target odor for the dog to distinguish between, and you're doing that from multiple vessels, and then you have preloaded that, that marker somewhere else and you implement it. So I would imagine that's fairly early in your training. My question then is that before or after the dog has a condition final response on the target odor? So I, I do not do a condition final response before I do the, the mark happens. Basically, the first step is once, what, like I said, we did the searching part. So now I have two objects, two vessels. Mm. One has odor in it, one salient, one has nothing. Mm-hmm. When it sniffs the, the salient odor, the one it knows from the searching games, it, it, whatever its natural response is, I mark that yep. and then I build from there. Okay, perfect. So if the dog is required to do, let's say, a sit position, I will build, you know, step You layer it in later. So first it's yeah, first it's freezing up, freezing up a duration, and then as I build, we'll get to a sit, you know, depending on the dog. So that's why it's hard to give you a specific answer like day five, it goes to this. Sure, sure, I No, so it's going to be, de- depending on that dog, um, my first thing is searching, like Jerry said, all about the searching. The next thing is now we're going to reckon that this is the odor I want you to pay attention to. So once I have the dog understanding the one is hot, the one is not, then I then add three to four, let's say items, because what we've learned mathematically, you only need a force three, three whole force variable. Cause you know, typically a dog's going to find it within three to four reps max, depending mm-hmm. on how many items you have out. So mathematically you're not gaining anything by having, let's say 15 holes. So anyway, you have the, the dog goes up, let's say now is when I have a non-target odor present. So when I go from two to others, mm-hmm. there's now a non-target odor present. So the dog goes and indicate if, if a dog does anything to the non-target salient odor, nothing happens, but it goes to target odor, mark, and then we go from there. Okay. And you're reinforcing back to you stage. at that point. So let me, let me then go over, cause we, we've got the process. Let me go over to you then, Jerry. So at what do you, same question, do you pre, like the dogs that you do have a mark release, come back to handle the ones Ben's are training cause that's a requirement. Does he then preload that marker elsewhere? And at what point do you implement it in the training? or use it for the first time in the training. You can interview him and ask him about how he does his, his, uh, that's actually a good, I would love to get Ben on actually. If he, I, <laughs> anyway, carry on. Happy, happy to come on. But like for, you know, for what we do with the, the drug dogs that are, you know, we're, we're not doing an indirect reward system with them. I'm not preloading, you know, the sort of the petting marker because that'll start happening once the dogs uh, start sitting on the box and uh, we're, you know, we're doing that reward from source. So once, once they, once they start understanding the sit, you know, obviously we're rewarding quickly once, you know, once they obtain the sit, sometimes we have to eliminate a, f- a few little superstitious behaviors where, you know, the dog might stop on the right box and then he scoots his ass two or three steps to the right. And then he comes to a final resting spot in, in his sit. And so we might have to eliminate that a little bit. And then once we get the, you know, the, the desired response, where the dog stops on the box and he gives us the sit, then we'll start, you know, building duration and that's it. And that's where we start petting and start petting. And then we bring in some of the other, you know, other distractors that I talked about. Uh, and then, uh, and then it'll start, you know, the dogs are already have been like taught that staring is a good thing, obviously do, uh, do tracking article indications and things like that. We kind of start the article indications. I, I stole your idea of that, you know, of the, the head in the box kind of a thing. Cause mm-hmm. we have a lot, 
ADHD um, dogs that we train. So um, by, by sticking their head in the box, it actually takes away some of the other things that they might be looking at and teach them to stare at a little metal washer. You know, we'll use, we'll do that a little bit with uh, with a clicker. We'll we'll preload the clicker when we teach that bit of staring. Um, but yeah, once they kind of get the idea that staring uh, in in this context is a good thing, and I, I use the uh, I use the petting and you know tell them good and you know in a sort of soft voice, and then uh, you know and then the wall will pop out at some point during during the duration on a variable basis for you know for that. Mm-hmm. So the but, I, but like we don't I don't teach the indication until probably. Uh, maybe six weeks into the hunting is kind of ideal for me. I, I want at least, you know, six weeks of operational hunting before I worry about teaching final response to the dogs. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like, let me see if I've gotten to the bottom of <laughs> any difference between you guys and what you actually do is, is minimal. that you start and finish the same on the left, you're teaching the hunt and on the right, you've got a, a finished dog that, Binds and goes to a very reward schedule and no longer needs to be reinforced every time, especially on a live job, can just be put back in the car and told he's a good boy on the way. And the real difference for you guys is just where you bring in the mark for release from there. That's And you both do it, but just at a different point on the timeline. And just it sounds variations. like a pretty minor variance on the different mm. point of the timeline as it is. I also, I'll say, I like what Jerry does with what I call a duration marker. You know, another friend of mine, um, Mike Herstick, he he uses a clicker as a duration. So the do- the dog hears that clicker and it holds harder, waiting for when the toy is delivered directly. Mm-hmm. Um, same as, as as Jerry's bringing up that petting is that duration. Yep. You know, for me, it's the word good. So when my dog hears good, yep. they know okay, I'm holding until I hear free. So the you know it's it's it, it, again it's nuances and it, and it's and it's funny, I mean, you forgot the other thing that we both agree on is what the old training really is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the old training thing. Well, and you know what? We, we well, both clearly agree that's old training. Yeah, which was once effective, right? And, and is now yeah. we just have better, it's, so do better. It's the same thing that we we discussed on the show many times is that, you know, we only know the science that we've currently got. And until that time, you know, the old techniques work. They work for what we needed them for. And then as new science starts to present itself, then we start to – moderately upgrade ourselves to looking at new efficiencies and better understanding of how the dog's actually working. And I mean, even now that we're starting to look into MRI technology into um, canine brain behavior, we can start to see how that mapping is actually working. I mean, there's a lot of different things that we've, we're, we're doing. However, if you really examine it, some even some of the old mistakes and some of the old ways of doing it, there's still foundations there that we can still learn from and we're still growing out of that. And Jerry and I will both laugh at the we, – we both been around long enough when scratch alert was the number one way to train a drug dog. Was <laughs> you had to have that crazy scratch behavior and – Oh, active and responses. The, oh, yeah. And mm. then when, when, when passive started becoming popular, every one of those trainers was like, that passive alert is bullshit. Those <laughs> dogs can't pinpoint for crap. My scratch alert dog will scratch right where the dope's at. And da 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 da. There's there, how does your passive alert dog even tell you when there's odor above its head in the car or in a visor or whatever? My dog will get up there and bite the shit out of it, and rip it, and, it yeah. and but that was you know when passive alert was starting to become popular. That was the arguments we were fighting, you know. And for those of us, because he and I were probably both closer to the same age, where we were in the fold. That was how we started. You know, I, I did my first dogs ever trained was all scratch alert, you know, labs. 
and then it moved into passive alert probably in you know late 90s and then it grew from there and now when you when someone shows up and they say they got an active alert dog you're like fuck i can't put a hide there and i can't put a freaking hide over here and so and let's hope to god he never finds fentanyl and gets a mouthful of that and kills himself (laughs) yeah i think one of the things that um that bears you know kind of emphasis is I think when you look at all like the Facebook university stuff that's going on currently, <laughs> uh, mm. like, you get, you get the idea that like all you need to train a drug dog is, you know, like a clicker and some boxes sure. and you're good. You're good to fucking go. Right. And that's, that's sort of the, the myth I'm trying to dispel. And this, it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what, you know, methodology you want to use for training a final response. They're like, you know, 10, diff- 10 different ways that you can do it. It's, you know, whether you have the dog come back to the handler or you have the dog, you know, hold the indication and pay him over the top of his head. Like it's, it's all, it's all fine. I think the, um, I think the real issue is if you're, if you're not starting with some direct reward system, you know, where that dog operationally hunts the environments that he's going to have to yep. hunt, uh, and you don't lay enough of that foundation. If you're, and, and, and like, here's the thing too, like some people think, well, well, if I just go out and you know, and, and, uh, and do hunting for a week, you know, then I can start shaping the indication. Mm. Like is me to me, like the, in, like the obedience aspect of training that final response is like kryptonite to that hunting dog. And, and you can, you can actually take what normally would blossom into a really good hunting dog and mm-hmm. really start that indication to suppress it. Mm. You put rules Agreed. around finding odor, like, I don't understand why people think they need to put these rules around finding odor so fast in the process. Yep. If you're a good trainer, if you're a good trainer, you can train a dog to sit and drive, right? Like when people say to me, Oh, you got to train that, you know, I got to train that final response, like way out of drive and do keep it simple. And, you know, like keep it really, really low drive for the dog. And I'm like, why if eventually the dog's going to be in drive, why don't you just tackle that problem? Mm-hmm. Like teach the dog how to cap his drives for Christ's sakes. You have to do yep. it going to teach him to to cap and, and bite work you have to teach him to stop an attack you know or you send them on somebody and you have to like recall them or drop them you know at a distance but you have to do that shit anyway so like teach him like teach him how to hunt like a berserk wild animal right like if i put like scent tubes out for my dogs they would just pick them up and carry them around like i, I have to have <laughs> something that's like heavy when i teach my final response you know what i mean right like yeah <laughs> <laughs> they can't if they if they could pick up the boxes like they would like but they're really happy. oh yeah but like I, I you know like no all joking aside I think the important thing is like you literally have to you have to teach these dogs that they can you know they can sit in drive they can sit on an odor cue yeah um, have to teach them how to push duration in their indications mm-hmm. and whether you flip the ball over the top of their head or you bring it back to you doesn't matter all that much I will say this. If you start the, the bringing the handler in as, as the delivery vehicle, you build up less of a reward history, right, of the dog operationally finding odor. And that I find a little bit of a problem with. Like you can teach hunting independent of the odor, like have them go out and hunt for a ball or something like that for a couple of weeks. And then, you you know, if you bring in the, you know, the, the, the odor recognition and the final response together, where I see problems arising is, is there where now the handler becomes like part of the, of the process, which is identify the right odor, run to me and get reinforcement rather than get reinforcement out in your, in your hunting area. And that's the, that's the part that I kind of, I kind of like about 
you know, the direct reward systems. I like, I like that fixed action pattern to blossom in the dog to where like when that dog is out hunting, we'll have students and like the handlers and working the dog in like a 15 uh, foot leash. The dog is just going around hunting his, his little balls off. And we got people walking in and out of rooms. We got the handler is just, you know, just sort of basically standing there in the middle of the room and just letting the dog go about his business. The dog is getting zero information from people. Uh, and he just learns that ah, these people are irrelevant to my mm. task. As long as I go out and I hunt, I'm going to find what I need to find. And then as soon as you start doing the, um, you know, the final response piece, then all of a sudden you're changing the game on the dog and you're saying, now we all matter. Right now, where you know, obviously, like Cameron was saying, if you have a handler that's when you're doing boxes, and then you know the dog hits the odor, and then the handler freezes right next to the box where the odor is, and then the dog like looks at you for confirmation, then you, the handler stares at the dog, and the dog stares at the handler, and then like, oh Jesus Christ, like will somebody like just act normal? You know? <laughs> like that kind of stuff drives me crazy. But if if you you know if you have dogs that are already so independent that they don't even think that the handlers offer any information at all, that to me is a huge bonus going into the final response training where the dog already, like most of my dogs when they go in the handler course with Sean, like they don't, they don't barely want to follow presentations. Like you present over yeah. here and the dog wants to run in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. And I tease Sean, I'm like, I do that on purpose, right? To make your life, you know, miserable. <laughs> the dogs don't follow presentations. But like my idea actually is I'd rather them be so independent that you have to struggle a little bit to get them to follow the handlers rather than being so cued into what the handlers are presenting or what they're doing that they actually are looking at them for information. Mm. And I, I, I thousand percent agree with, yeah. I mean, he hit, he hit the nail on and I, one of the biggest things I, I, again, make one of my comments on nothing creates hunting better than hunting. It's called detection. It's not called finding mm. or, or, or alerting, you know, you can't put so much focus on the end, which is the indication. It has to be, you want that freaking hunting machine and hunting includes that duration that like Jerry brought up. People sometimes don't put any duration. They'll put four or five freaking odors out in a small area. I'm like, where the fuck is the hunting in that? Mm. Yeah. You know, you can't, you're not just going in, in the sport world. Okay. It's slightly different. We're dealing with nose work dogs. That's their world. They have to find, and I get it. And we make adjustments to that, but to that, operational dog i want that dog just like jerry said a hunting freaking bastard nothing means more to him than constantly hunting hunt 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 that's what he wants to do yeah and I think then the other stuff comes into play the common also, problem sorry go ahead jerry the other thing when you're doing like uh, like direct reward in the beginning which I, I think i think most people that understand how to turn out good hunting dogs know that you have to do a lot of that up front but i i think the the other thing is the only way, maybe you were thinking about bringing this up later on where we talk about like single blind, double blind, that kind of stuff. But I think the only way anybody ever gets to know what their dog looks like in odor is to actually watch them work odor and know where the, the odor is. So when you're doing these direct reward systems and the hunting is, the dog is busy hunting and the handler's standing in the middle of the room with a 15 foot line, the dog is going all over the place trying to find a pipe. What you can see, you can see the, you can see the changes, you, don't, you know, like, and, and you're not giving away any information right? Like you're not, you're, you're not going to go over there and like, you know, present anything. If the dog misses it in the room, you go to the next room and you keep on going. And like a lot of my student, my student handlers, they really learn how to read dogs by going through, you know, day after day after day of these hunting drills with the dogs. 
And then, you know, we'll set up lots of like known blanks for the dogs to where, like Cameron was saying, you can, you know, put out distractor odors and say, look, we've got gauze pads filled with dog saliva in plastic baggies in a drawer in room 318. You know what I mean? Like make sure, you know, make sure these dogs don't linger too long on that, you know, get them to, uh, to where they, they pass that stuff by, you know, move them in and out of those rooms, successively approximate those hot spots a little bit. And then after a while, the dogs are just ignoring all that stuff. And, you know, when the handlers know what they're looking at, when they know, oh, this dog is like looking at a novel odor, he's, you know, he's, he's checking out something interesting, you know, and that sort of thing, you're doing doing that in the beginning with no final response, you have like really no chance of the dog giving, you know, the, the indication or falsing, right? The earlier you train that final response, the more you have to worry about, you know, like, Oh, are are we going to get a false? Are we going to get a print? You know, something like that. Right. So when that dog literally has to stop at the source of the, of the, of the hide and pick the pipe up in its mouth for me, like that's the, that's the end of the game for the first six weeks. And when that dog learns to ignore all matter of distractions, you know, plastic baggies and gloves and all that sort of stuff. And, and that stuff's built into your, to your search patterns. They're built into the rooms where you're searching and, and so forth. Then it just makes for a much more readable dog. And I think the students appreciate being able to, you know, read when their dog's actually in odor. So, you know, you know, you know what your dog looks like, you know, I, I think sometimes, I think sometimes we we don't realize that we can take advantage of so many things in that direct reward phase of training, uh, not to mention environmentals. You can see where your dog struggles, you know, and, and so forth. And, you know, rather than spending the first, you know, three or four weeks teaching a final response and then you get out and you start hunting and you're like, well, wait a minute, it isn't hunt so good. Well, why did I just spend three weeks teaching them how to fucking hunt? <laughs> mm, yeah. different odors? Like, like, <laughs> I'd rather find that out early before I put in the really hard work. Yeah. No kidding. And, and I'll, I'll add one thing that he brought up, which is good. Not only reading your dog when Scott odor, one of the things I'm sure he'll agree with me on this is handlers being good at reading when their dog does not have odor mm-hmm. god some of them just have no clue how to read that their dog's been telling them there's nothing here and that's another aspect that's important and that typically should go hand in hand when reading your dog's got odor how what that looks like but also looking at and seeing when you deliberately set up something and there's no odor there and can the handler successfully navigate that as an evaluator nothing gives me more confidence in a team when they can come out of an area and tell me there's nothing there yeah. because that's freaking hard for a handler to walk out and go blank or nothing or whatever. The answer is because man, their pucker factor when they hit, let's say cart number <laughs> seven and they haven't found anything yet or room number eight or whatever it is. They're like, Oh, your dog's totally fucking me over right now, but they have to trust. And if they, like Jerry said, if they can read their dog and know those behavioral, those nuances of their particular dog, they should have that confidence to walk out and go nothing here, man. We're good. Yeah. I think, you know, I think what it comes down to for everybody that's training detection effectively is the cornerstone of it has to be to minimize the help that you give the dog in training. Because mm-hmm. ultimately you're going to ask, the reason you have a dog is you're going to ask it to do something you can't do. So you, while you can do it in training and you actually know where the thing is or whether there's a thing, an odor present, the inferences that you give your dog to try and assist him in finding that or continuing to search it or anything like that is not going to be helpful because you 
although if you knew if you could smell drugs, we wouldn't need the dog. If you had some device where you knew where it was intuitively, you wouldn't need the dog. Mm. Ultimately, when he goes to work, he you don't know. You're incapable of doing the job you're gonna ask him to do. A lot of times when I'm trying to explain this to people, I I try and explain it to them in a format that they'll actually understand. And I say to them, your job is that you're a field ref, not the player. So let the player do the game. You're there to just referee what goes on and make sure that any mistakes are resolved and whatever needs to be rewarded gets rewarded. You're, you're right. I mean, it's, you know, we got a unique thing here in the United States right now. So the National Forensic Board has, has by definition, deemed the dog a censor. Nothing new per se, but it, it gave it the title or definition of censor. So by that, just like you said, you now have this sensor utilizing it properly in the way that we've all been discussing, keeping yourself at the right level of interacting with that sensor and utilizing that sensor. That sensor performs as it was trained in this case, dogs. And then it's been reviewed and tested per se by, you know, whether it be certifying or what have you, that it, it works and functions properly. So for us, that's a change. We've all treated it that way, but to now have a national forensic board give it that thing, we, you know, there'll be legal aspects that will look to it and go, oh, are you doing X, Y, and Z? Are your training aids, you know, stored in certain ways? This is where science starts coming in a little bit more. Will be okay. Are you? How are you storing it? How often do you change it out? You know, so on and so forth. There's there's other other little things there, but this is where. So that's going to go on along with, like I was saying earlier, the the whole reaction that's happening with law enforcement and trust and so forth. You know, Jerry may have the opinion on this, too, is I fully expect a deeper examination or more independent individuals being brought in a reviewing of detection dogs, specifically drug dogs. You might see an agency that's now going to have to kind of cave or respond to the Citizens Review Board allowing an individual from them to come out and watch training or watch a certification, watch and see how it's set up. And if your house is in order, you got nothing to worry about, you know, mm -hmm. but you know, it's not something we're used to right now. And again, the, the part that we're going to fight a little bit is my agency trained the dog and then my neighboring agency came over or I'm part of a national organization. My master trainer is Joe Blow so-and-so from the AC, you know, I love that term, away. master trainer. He's going to sort of, they, yeah. <laughs> so American. They, more than likely, we're going to face a knee jerk. We're going to face a reaction to that that's not going to be as widely accepted. You know, they're not going to be as, they may say, yeah, you can do it, but we want some oversight or we want some eyes in on this to just to make sure that this tool is being utilized properly and being evaluated and tested properly. Yeah. And that's where there's going to be some weeds to go through. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Cameron. And I think that generally most professionals that I speak to in this field agree, and it doesn't matter whether we're talking scent detection or not. What we've got to be mindful of is that we're not trying to preserve ego or love and defending grandpa's legacy from 50 years ago. You know, and most people have evolved beyond that, but there is still that problem that is present around different training methodologies that they're still trying to hold true to something that was happening 40 years ago simply because it was told to them in trust and they still think that that's the right way to do things and it you know when you start getting down to burden of proof and and getting involved in court cases and so forth that just won't cut it for you anymore especially when people are more learned these days and they are researching principles on olfaction and canine behavior and they start realizing you know you just can't pull the wall over my 
my eyes anymore like you used to be able to 30, 40 years ago when no one really knew the realm of olfactional canine behaviour. Mm. Hey, uh, did I cut you off before, Jerry? Did you have something to add to that? Cameron was talking so long, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a, a problem you're likely to encounter when you put four professional talkers on, on the same call. <laughs> what I was going to say is I think, I think you get a lot of people that are under the impression, you know, because let's say, you know, I know Cameron does nose work. I've, I've had a, a bunch of our civilian students that, that do nose work with their dogs. And you know, a lot of times these people come to, to that particular venue with pet dogs that, you know, aren't like, you know, genetically selected for this type of work and they don't have any natural hunt drive and stuff like that. And so basically, you know, the idea is, you know, teach the, you know, teach the dog that, you know, this odor matters for your life and, there, and there's something good in it for you. And, you know, sort of hope you can, you know, like build in some, you know, some hunting, you know, uh, behaviors, you know, once you teach the dog that these odors matter and, and typically you might do that with an indirect reward system, you know, uh, or you're sort of front loading the, the odor recognition final response together, you know, build, you know, building on that behavior. And I, I, I totally get that. Um, but I think it's, I think it's important for people who aspire to do this in the operational realm to, to really understand the value of those hunting behaviors watching a dog hunt and both of you have been to my place like watching dogs hunt is not the sexiest thing that you can see mm. you know but when you know when you when you watch a dog stick its nose in a hole and hold that position and on a clicker come back and you know get a piece of food somehow like that's like super sexy mm. and so well, I think people that are like looking into doing detection and they, you know, they start thinking, oh, you know, like that's detection. That's actually not detection. It's not even a little bit the most important part of detection. And, you know, like when, you know, when you get your, and I see this all the time with handlers, like when you give a, a, a dog to a handler that has never experienced an independent dog, their world changes. Like sometimes we'll get handlers in for like instructor classes. And then, you know, I'll see their dogs work a little bit and I'll be like, you know, they're constantly like recasting their dog out to, to, to hunt, you know, and things like that. And, you know, that might be an artifact of kind of the way the dog was trained or, or is, is, you know, his hunting wasn't allowed to develop properly. You know, he learned that every time he showed a little bit of difficulty that the handler would step in and like present some stuff and he could involve his handler in the job you know, for just for fun, you know, by standing there and looking at him acting like he doesn't know what the fuck to do. Right. And you know, you have the, the handler keeps stepping in, like recast the dog to hunting. And then you, you know, like you give him a 15 foot line and you say like, hold on here. Just, you know, like we do, everybody have, we were talking about this this week, everybody, no matter where you train has like some stupid thing in detection that they do that's an artifact of like 10 years of history and if you've been here you know it's like put the dog in a sit kiss your hand start the search and the dog takes off mm -hmm. right and you know whatever noise you make to get the dog started or whatever command you give in whatever tone of voice right so you get the dog and then all of a sudden this person is like holy shit like this dog only is searching and you know they're like searching a room and they're scanning and then they're boom, they're across the hall and they're in the next room and then, you know, boom, 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 boom. They just keep working and they're doing all these rooms and all these blanks. And it's like, what would normally take their dog, you know, 30 minutes, you know, this dog is finishing in five minutes, you mm -hmm. know, the same amount of search area because the dog is quick, efficient, you know, and understands uh, how, you know, to, to get to odor. And unhindered and, by also, training. 
they're, yeah, they're not looking back at the handlers, you know what I mean? Like, they're, <laughs> and, and things like that. And, and like, some of these handlers are like, holy shit, like, I never, I've never been on the other end of a dog that really works independently. And, and that's a, that's a huge thing. And that all is, is sort of branched for me off the, off the hunting behavior. So like when you're, you know, when you're looking at detection, like to me, like that final response piece is, is such a, it's not an, I won't say it's an insignificant part of the, of the, of the whole, because it's an important part of the whole, you know, we, we need to have that discernible final response. <laughs> and like you said, when you see all some of these live TV things, you're like, what did this dog just do and how'd they get in that car? I don't understand. <laughs> like, you know, what, what are, they, are they looking at the same thing I was like, are they just better at picking up on subtlety than me or, you know, and it's like, Oh yeah, he knows it's in there. Okay. All right. That's fine. <laughs> but you know, like I, I think when you, when you have, you know, like clean behaviors and, and well-trained behaviors and things like that, it does make for a, a much better finished product. And, and I agree. I think, I think you're right. Like a lot of times, most most trainers, if they were to actually get together and, and talk about stuff, would be like, you know, it's it's not different. I, one of the things that I do detest about what what some trainers do is they get on to you know these social media platforms and they're like, oh, if you're training dogs to you know like stare at you know stare at something and you have to trick them into look, I don't trick a dog into looking at source. He's learned that if he stares at source after he finds it, his ball will appear in front of him mm. and. I can throw his ball from the side. I can throw his ball from over the top. I can bounce it, you know, on the floor underneath him. All he cares about is I've done this trained behavior numerous times. And if I just hold this position, my ball will appear for me. And I just find that like really simple to do. I don't have to worry about the dog having to come back to me. You know what I mean? Um, but I'm also, you know, like I'm also not like trying to shape a lot of stuff with the old, with, with the odor recognition at the same time I'm treat, treating that uh, or training that final response. So, I, and like I said, we, you know, I have no problem with anybody who wants to do it that way. It's not my preferred way, especially for our drug dogs, but it's, uh, you know, there are 10, you know, 15 different ways to train dogs to do, you know, uh, detection. And I think I just found that when you're training lots of dogs and, you know, especially like for these big classes that are buying, you know, 15 dogs at a time, like you got to find a method that's robust to a, a variety of dogs. You're going to have a bell curve of dogs. You know what I mean? And, and handlers, right? You know what I mean? And, and like, you know, you have to have methodologies that are going to be, you know, fairly quick, fairly efficient, you know, to get to, you know, a good, you know, trained state. Like a lot of these classes, I don't know if camera just, if you run classes where the handlers have the dog from the beginning, that's kind of like, for me, it's kind of like, all right, you want to, you know, change your uh, drive axle on this truck. All right, well, come on in and I'll talk you through it, even though I know how to do it. You know what I mean? Like that's tough. Like I, I know a lot of guys that run classes and it's much, trust me, it's much easier to have like four or five professional trainers and say, all right, let's get these dogs trained up to this standard. And then you know, we'll let Sean deal with the, the handlers as they go through the handler course and teach them how to read their dogs and, and all that good stuff. It's tough when you're trying to shape behaviors and, you know, you have like, you know, a bunch of people that never owned a dog before, you know what I mean? Like, so you got to pick methods that are kind of robust. Mm. One thing, one thing, um, you know, Stuart Hilliard told me years and years ago, he was like, you know, he was asking me about how we train detection, our kind of methodologies. And this was when they were kind of refining the deferred final response in the military where, you know, where they're sort of pushing that final response way late because they realized that they had a lot of dogs in the military that wouldn't hunt. He said to me, 
he said, you know, we've done a lot of studies on, you know, on methodologies. And he goes, honestly, dogs that finish the training are pretty robust to method. That doesn't mean they all get to the finish line, right? Mm -hmm. But like once you, you know, once you go down a training regimen, the dogs kind of, you know, they're pretty robust and no matter how you train them, like they eventually pick up on it despite, you know, our inefficiencies as human beings trying to, you know, get the species that doesn't communicate verbally to understand what we want them to understand. So that's my take on everything is I really want to do a lot of stuff as efficiently as I possibly can. But for me, you know, optimal solutions are not always like really in real, in the real world, the best solution. Sometimes mm-hmm. I, I want to take a slightly suboptimal solution to teaching detection so I can get things churned out a little bit faster and get the boxes checked off on all my environmental stuff and, you know, and, and things like that and, and patterning and things like that that you have to teach when you're doing cars on the side of the road and so forth. You want that dog like glued to a car, you know, so there, there's so much to teach in detection that you have to pick a methodology that works well with you that you can communicate to other human beings. You know, I think everything we've kind of said today, this has been rattling around in the back of my head. And if it's cool with you guys, we'll, we'll look to wrap it up and, and finish on this is that I think dog training is a big part science and it's a big part art. Mm-hmm. And I think overwhelmingly what we're seeing now is that the scientists are able to explain what the artists have been doing for a long time. And um, mm-hmm. while there's people who, you know, sometimes they might come in conflict, but when, you know, when the artist is doing it and doing it effectively and the scientist says, this is a better method, it requires a, a burden of proof to, on that, like outside of your lab, because this intuitive feel and how I've been doing it is working and has worked. And I'm able to pass that on and I, I can replicate that on the street. And in order for us to then say, okay, that's a better method. There has to be a huge body of evidence to say, okay, you have shown it better, but overwhelmingly what I see is that the scientists are just saying, yeah, that artist was correct all along, right? Like he was doing it the right way. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a lot of times. And I know Jerry goes through it. They'll come up to us and you know, you'll read something and you'll be like, no shit. I've done that for you. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But with that said, they've never been exposed to us and we're, that's right. It's two I worlds. Felt, that how I fell into it. You know, being the you know kind of the geek that I was about really wanting to learn some of that stuff was, I thought I was the one being all enamored, like watching what they were doing. Like, oh my gosh, I'm sitting in a room with a freaking Harvard professor and another one who you know University of Florida with Clyde Win and all this. You know, I'm starting going, how did I get here? They look at us sometimes and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I get to train or do research next to you guys that you know, play with dogs and train dogs. So there was, there was actually a mutual admiration on both mm-hmm. sides. And I love that, you know, Jerry brought uh, Nathan on as well to his podcast, because at the end of the day, we, exactly what you're saying is it's a mixture of both. And, and, but by us getting together more often than we ever have, the scientists and the practitioners doing more work together, we validate a lot of things and then we learn about things. Mm-hmm. And then we also learn, you know, some stuff is, yep, that's total crap. So Jerry made an excellent point on his last podcast on science and detection is, you know, and I, I posted a video on you guys saw it on Facebook the other day was, you know, and I made a joke with Nathan. One day you guys say, you know, the video I used came from that news TV show, Space Force, whatever. And he was like, 
The guy's like, why don't you trust scientists? He goes, because one day you tell me to eat carbs. The next day you tell me to eat carbs. <laughs> and he's like, how, how the hell am I supposed to do? And the guy goes, well, science is based on sampling size. And he's like, it's a very fluid thing. He goes, just shut up. <laughs> you know? and, that's, and that's how we feel as, as dog trainers sometimes. We're like, just shut up. You can't tell me one thing, one thing, you know, one minute and the next. But as they, as them, as scientists will say is, well, because we're constantly trying to learn, we're constantly trying to do stuff where Jerry brings up the point, And I a hundred percent agree is we have to be careful about diving in headfirst on whatever that survey said or whatever yeah. that research paper said, yeah. because your experience, his experience, my experience, we can all look at something and extrapolate the important things and go, okay, yep, that was good. Or, they yeah, great. You can do that on a wheel in a laboratory, but that doesn't mean jack shit over here. So the interconnection between guys, you know, like us that are out there doing it, interacting with those science at the end of the day, the collaboration is what will continue to bring us forward and help us perform better and help us under scrutiny. Cause we need those, that data. And sometimes those scientists to you know, be on our side, not be pulled over to the feds who, you know, want to poke holes in whatever they're going to try to use based on some paper that they read. Yeah. But. And I think always remembering that the proof is in the pudding. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Hey, let's wrap it up. We've been going for a, a, an hour and a half and I haven't even gotten to throw the cat amongst the pigeons yet and bring up pseudo versus real sense, but we'll save that for another day. <laughs> yeah, we, we did well, threaten that we're going to talk. We're on the same page on that one too. Really? <laughs> well, maybe we'll have yeah. that conversation another day. Jerry, yeah. tell us about your show. How can people get in contact with you? Give you the wrap up of your podcast, then then you, Cameron, then I'll, I'll lead us out with ours. I was just going to say to your, like to your last comment, if, if I can real quickly, Yeah, I do believe that in this like day and age, people take this simplistic view that, you know, if you understand conditioning theory, like in, in theory, you know, operant conditioning, classical conditioning and so forth, like that you've got some kind of handle on dog training, you know, yeah. like yeah. Present, present me with a problem and I'll tell you what quadrant you need to work in and you know, people think it's so, it's like as simple as that. And it's just so not, there's so much that goes to like having a handler that's intuitive and fluid. And there's just stuff in that you, you really can't teach that you have to experience and you have to just get better at with time. Mm. And that stuff makes a huge difference in, you know, and how the dogs perform for you. And, um, and so, you know, some people have it and some people don't have it in, uh, in quite the same quantity as others. You know, the reason I did that podcast on science and dog training is because I think people sometimes jump to conclusions when there's a, a bit of research. I think on the other side of that, too, like people, and this would this would be part of my answer in the pseudo and, and real uh, clash and dog training. Like, you know, some people want you to believe that the stuff in this magic silver box or bag is going to, you know, be the end of your falsing problems and the end of your you know, your, uh, your problems with finding large amounts and things like that. And you're like, okay, well, like show me a little bit of research that would bolster those claims. You know, even if you paid, you know, paid for it yourself as the company, yeah, right. as the manufacturer and it doesn't exist. And so, you know, you have to, you know, they're like, they're saying, oh, well, you know, you can ask anybody who uses our stuff. And then 
my answer to that is anybody who uses your stuff probably can't access real stuff anyway. So of course they're going to say it's great. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) There's a problem in there in our whole, not just in the dog training world or environment, but the there's a problem in the world in general is that a lot of people have got very, very wealthy just by charisma alone and no knowledge because if they sound convincing and they put on a good dog and pony show, then people will follow them no matter what, because they think it sounds right. And to them, they've got nothing to back it against. So they're convinced that, you know, this sounds good. I'm going to go with this explanation. I feel personally attacked, Glenn. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think, you know, one of the things that Cameron was bringing up about, um, you know, about standards and, and, and so forth. The only thing that, you know, like the only thing that troubles me about that is that, once you have, you know, sort of, uh, you know, standards breed more standards and more centralization. And, you know, and and what, what worries me is that right now we've got a a very nice free market of dog training. And I don't necessarily think like centralization of methodology is necessarily something that we should be shooting for because you have, you know, a lot of people that are very good at training dogs from the artist's perspective as well that as long as this is the science piece is, is fairly standard that you're not doing anything like way off base, you know, in terms of things like, you know, storage and, you know, and, uh, and handling and mm. cross contamination and, you know, and things like that. I think, you know, we should be free to, uh, you know, free to train dogs sort of the way that, you know, that individual trainers see best, see it as fits best because, I look at all the dogs that are in my, you know, cadre of training dogs and I might have at any given time when we're busy, you know, like 20 some odd narcotics dogs and, you know, Ben may have 10 or 15 bomb dogs that he's training. And I look at every one of those dogs as I've got a general process for you, but I'm going to have to make, you know, adjustments each week to how we're doing that with that particular dog based on some of his behavior. And I think you have to allow trainers, you know, to be able to make those adjustments on the fly. It's the classes where everybody does the same thing every day. There's no adjustments. There's no, no room for nuance. As Cameron mentioned early in the podcast, when you train like that, you're guaranteed to flunk out a large proportion of dogs because you're trying to follow Mm -hmm. a form that not all the dogs and handlers can follow. And if you don't have the ability to, like one of my, you know, one of my um, uh, student dogs, you know, right now um, she's, you know, she's struggling. The dog doesn't have great hunt drive. We started doing indirect reward with the dog, you know, just to get the dog interested enough into the odor for it to matter for that dog to even think about hunting. And if you can't change methods, I'm sure Cameron deals with the situation too, where he's like, this dog has to stay on direct reward for a bit longer before we start Mm -hmm. shaping, you know, shaping final response. And, you know, the same thing for me, I I might have a dog that hunts like a, you know, like a a monster. And I may say, you know what, let's like, you know, let's get this, let's just get this dog on the final response already because adding three more weeks of hunting to this dog, because he's already like a a monster at hunting is not going to really bias anything great. So we might as well get the final response out of the way. And then we can go back to operational hunting, you know, and, and, and challenging the dog even more. So like you have to be able to make those decisions on the fly and, and, you know, and know what the dog needs. And I'll say this too, if you don't train a lot of dogs, like I mean a lot of dogs to the end yourself, you don't really understand the process. (laughs) Yeah. 
you've got to really get to the end with a lot of dogs, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's super, super important because you learn so many things and then that's where you end up on the, on the sort of down slope and then that upslope of the Dunning-Kruger um, <laughs> you know, curve, right? Like, you, you know, like train enough dogs and you'll fall off that, you know, that, that inflection point in the beginning of the curve where you know fucking everything, right? And then you start realizing, oh shit, I don't know as much as I thought. Mm. And then doing it for a lot more repetitions, you know, for a lot of years. And then you start to go on the upswing and like, all right, I'm not as stupid as I thought I was about three years ago, but I still don't know everything. There's a lot and, of, a lot of walls to hit in that list, in that learning platform. Uh, there's still, there's still a lot more to learn. And I, I think the, I think the scientists are teaching us stuff all the time. We got to take it with a grain of salt because we still have to train dogs before all the body of evidence is in about how we ought to do it. I agree. We should definitely, there's no way we should try to regulate or control a methodology. Like you said, the cognition side that I go through and learn, we have to be flexible to that dog. We have to do what's best efficient in communicating to that dog. And if you're locked into one system, this actually came, this is back when I was like in my early twenties as an old German trainer. And we were just shooting the shit one day and he goes, Cameron, if you take one way and you train five dogs, you get five different results. But if you are flexible with those dogs and you train each dog to that, whatever that dog needs with five dogs, you get one result, the one you want. Mm. So way back when, when I was, you know, just hanging out in a German dog club, that guy who probably didn't do anything with science knew what the, the most important thing was. You had to be flexible as a trainer and train to the dog in front of you. Mm. And if you do that, you will get the result you're looking for. And like Jerry said, the proof is in the pudding. You know, where I think we should have more unified is in our review of the teams. Once we're done training and we want to, you know, review the team or peer review or certification or whatever you want to call it, is that should have, and it is pretty good here in the States. It's not great, but, you know, it should be pretty uniform across the board. A, you know, narcotics team is reviewed this way, bomb dogs reviewed this way, so on and so forth. So in that sense, the end result should be reviewed to a standard. But man, how you get there, you have to be flexible. Can I just add to that, that any peer review group, if it was to ever form, would need to be by canine professionals and not just some um, flunky administrator that's sitting in an office because so many times those people are are great at writing procedures. However, the big problem that that I've seen in those situations is although they're good at procedures, they're very hollow on the information and the science behind the art that we're doing as trainers. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm hoping to have my work reviewed by community activists. So, <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. We'll be ready for it. Yeah. Boom tish. All right, Jerry, tell us how to get in contact with you. Where can people find all your info? A business uh, website, Tar Heel Canine, spelled out, dot com. And then uh, my podcast, the Controlled Aggression Podcast, got a uh, another uh, great episode coming up uh, in about a week or so. I do my second part of my interview with uh, Brad Gillespie. So if you're listening to this, go and check out uh, controlledaggressionpodcast.com. You can, uh, you can uh, listen to lots of episodes. I also, if, uh, related to this, have a, a nice episode on direct and indirect reward uh, that, uh, that I did as well. So, And uh, Instagram, you got to check me out on the gram. We got like lots of great videos that we're uh, throwing up there all the time. So mm-hmm. Tar Heel, A number nine. 
is our Instagram handle. So check us out there as well. And uh, Facebook, Tar Heel Canine Training School for Dog Trainers. You'll get all our training videos as well. Get posted up there if you want to check us out on Facebook. Awesome. Cameron? Yeah, the website is Ford Canine, F-O-R-D, K-Number9.com. Facebook is also Ford Canine. You can also find me on Instagram or Facebook directly personally, which is just at Cameron Ford Canine. The um, website now, as some of you guys know, I do a lot of webinars now. A lot of the guests that I have on the podcast, the Canines Talking Sense podcast, is also the Canines Talking Sense webinar format. And you can find both the podcast and the uh, webinars now uh, streaming on my website. So whether you use your typical ways to uh, uh, stream a podcast, if you don't and you want to go old school and sit at your computer, you can go to my website and get all the episodes that way. But the newer thing now is uh, all the uh, the webinars. You know, I'm, I'm trying to give platforms for some of the scientists to share some of the information as well as uh, – some of the great dog trainers and, and I'll probably have to sit down with uh, uh, Jerry sometime and we'll probably have to do, they can do a webinar together and uh, uh, let people, you know, cause a lot of times we, we get, we have like podcasts like this. It's all about hearing us talk and uh, the webinar can take, take us that next level and allow people to see some of the things, share some videos. I know Jerry's doing a lot more of that now too, doing a lot of his videos and things like that. It's extremely helpful for people to see, not just hear us talk about, all the cool shit that we do. I, I really feel like I need to take one of Cameron's uh, webinars on cognition because like I have convinced myself after 20 plus years of dog training that I like to train stupid dogs. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like he's, out, he's out there saying I should pick the smarter dogs. And I really think that's a huge mistake, but <clears throat> I'm going to have to... <laughs> I, I won't even say smarter dog because I I couldn't be in Brian Hammer laughing one time when people do that they'll say oh the smart dog and I'm like no I I just want the manual to the dog like which one are you are you an inference dog or are you a memory dog and then yeah. I can adjust accordingly but the uh, no no I would love to do it because what, what you bring up is a great point where people um, sharing that information because like you I used to do the same thing is the dumb dog made me happy and it still does but now I know, is it a dumb dog that actually has good memory or is it a uh, smart dog that has inference? And now I have to be smarter as a trainer to deal with it because sometimes, as we both know, we don't get to uh, always get to pick. Yeah, that, yeah, I get outsmarted by the dog sometimes. Too well, easily. they teach us how to be better trainers sometimes. That's the that's the oh, takeaway yeah. from it. Hey, gents, thank you both so much for your time. I really Absolutely. appreciate it. It's been a fun conversation. Mm. And I think what's been good is that I think two hours ago, people might say, hey, you know, Cameron and Jerry are sort of at, at odds on the way they do things. And I think that we've just sort of hashed out over the last, you know, hour and a half that actually not really. It's it's the same sort of thing. You're both achieving great results using very similar process with minor nuanced differences. Preferences. And, and yeah. I think what I would like to do and the whole reason we wanted to do this was to sort of set the tone for a discourse that goes down like this, right? So when you see someone mm -hmm. out there that, you know, maybe you see what they do and you go, hey, I'm, I'm curious about that, rather than going, you're a fucking idiot for the way you do that. Come on, the canine out paradigm and, go, and we can ref you. Yeah, well, talk it out and go, <laughs> oh, actually, we're doing the same thing. And I know you guys don't do that, but mm. I think that there's, has, there's followings that maybe look and go, you know, one guy does things one way, the other does the other. And it, it, it probably turns out that, you know, success usually follows a similar path, no matter mm. no matter who's doing it. So, thank you both very oh, much for your I, time. I appreciate it. And I've, I've been had, sorry, guys. I've been respect for Jerry for doing what he does. 
Yeah, we can. Um, you, you can tell. I mean, there's mutual respect all around the room, which is great. And I've to add to that, I've been furiously nodding my head in the background, listening to both of you talking. Like, <laughs> I know people can't see because it's a podcast, but I've been largely I've been silent through this, just listening to you gents talk because I love what you're saying. You're both talking from the knowledge base that you've gathered over many years of of working and being in the field and honing your art, and it's been absolutely fantastic. I've really appreciated it, and I'm you know I'm grateful for Pat for organising this to get it on on the show because it's I think this is a very important episode for a lot of people who are getting involved in detection work to to listen to and to reference so thank you gentlemen really appreciate everything you're doing and spending the time with us today thank you guys thank you, guys. And, uh, thank you as well for uh, kind words and it's uh, mutual I, uh, I'm glad we got to uh, sit down and have a little in-depth conversation these kind of conversations always are useful in the end for uh, everybody getting to know each other well i know we were scheduled to teach at like four detection conferences this year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was before, so, that was before uh, the apocalypse uh, mm. it took the boys from australia to like you know bring us together in the end <laughs> uh, no big deal just solving just solving america's problems one at a time <laughs> we'll, we'll <laughs> All right, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is via Patreon. Three bucks a month gets you an extra episode. Or, you know, you could directly send us a Lamborghini. If you PM us, you can, we can give you the address to, to post that to. Nice. Uh, another way you can support the show is to buy some cool merch that we have. You can jump onto Teespring and check us out there. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is to post something in the discussion group. Or if it's a personal thing, uh, send us an email. We are info at the canineparadigm.com. That's it. Glenn, music. Music.